0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in this episode I'm joined by an award-winning author whose TED Talks have gained millions of views. She's a recognised expert on how trust enabled by technology will change the way we live, work and consume. And her book... Who Can You Trust? reveals that we are on the cusp of one of the biggest social transformations in human history. She's Rachel Botsman. We've got them all intrigued now, Rachel. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And you have, of course, brought along a number of objects that have influenced your life and your writing. So, Rachel, what is this massive change that we're on the cusp of? This book started as a hunch,
1: basically. So I started to wonder... Why is it that we keep reading these headlines, trust is in crisis, or people don't trust politicians or journalists or bankers? Mm. And yet, why are strangers prepared to travel the world in people's homes on Airbnb? So I started to have this feeling that something really profound was happening to trust and that maybe trust wasn't in crisis. It was just shifting. Mm. And so that there is actually plenty of trust out there. It's just in different places and different people and different things. Yeah. And so I started to have this question, is technology making us smarter about who we trust? Or is it encouraging us to place our trust in the wrong people and the wrong places? And what I discovered through writing the book is mm-hmm. that basically what's happening is that through three distinct forms of change. So it used to be local trust when we all used to live in villages and communities and everyone knew everyone else. And then that wasn't scalable. So at the start of the Industrial Revolution, we invented institutional trust and people like insurance brokers and risk mechanisms. And that's what's breaking down because it wasn't designed for the digital age. And so we've got this new type of trust rising up, that I call distributed trust, yeah. that is trust that is directly between individuals and also sometimes robots or artificially intelligent machines.
0: Why do you think people now are sort of disillusioned with the traditional institutions? Is this timing coincidental? There's lots of different reasons why, but I
1: think the biggest reason why is lack of accountability. So why does it feel like leaders and elite that they Mm. can break down or behave really badly and they're just not punished for their wrongdoing? So the dangerous situation, the precarious situation that we're in right now is that people are losing faith in the system and they're starting to question what else could go wrong. And when you have society in that state, they start looking for other places to place their trust, which is why Brexit and Trump have a lot in common. And you could actually argue that there's too much trust, right? There's too much trust in people like Trump or um, some of the experts that influenced um, Brexit. So in this trust vacuum, these really interesting things emerge. The book isn't a positive spin on this shift. Like, it's quite dystopian. It's quite frightening where this trust shift is taking us. And I should say, when I started writing it, I was a lot more optimistic around the change that this could bring. Yeah. But one of the things that really scared me was how how easily we give away our trust, that we're in this, like, it's trust on speed. You know, I'm going to get a ride yeah. in two minutes and a toss rabbit by lunchtime and I'm going to meet my spouse by the evening. Yeah. And it's like with a tap and a swipe and a click. Yeah. One of the worrying things is it's very easy to say we don't like institutions or we don't like that politician, let's blame them. But in these systems, we have to take accountability for our actions. And yes, that's true. And I don't, when humans actually think about it, they, they, they like someone to blame. Right. They, When it goes wrong, they mm. look for a centre, they look for a leader. And that's where you see a lot of these systems actually break down. So I am not anti institution. I don't actually think the institution's going to die. I think it's an opportunity to reinvent them. Yes, but in change. ways that actually work for people and with people versus these pretty archaic
0: principles that just don't work anymore. Well, we're going to dip into who can you trust right now with an
2: extract from the audiobook read by Carolyn Baum. Significantly, this crisis is taking place in a landscape of rapidly shifting and evolving technologies from artificial intelligence to automation to the Internet of Things. We are already putting our faith in algorithms over humans in our daily lives, whether it's trusting Amazon's recommendations on what to read or Netflix suggestions on what to watch. But this is just the beginning. We will soon be riding around in self-driving cars, Trusting our very lives to the unseen hands of technology. At the same time, many people are feeling so overwhelmed by the pace of change and the sheer amount of knowledge now available at a swipe or keystroke that they are beating a retreat to media echo chambers that narrow down information and reinforce already held beliefs. It becomes easy to ignore or simply not see contrary views. Technology, for all its pluses, also means falsehoods and fake news can quickly spread through networks unchecked and with an unstoppable momentum. In fact, online misinformation on a grand scale and the potential for digital wildfires was listed by the World Economic Forum in 2016 as one of the major risks to our society. The result of those echo chambers and that misinformation? Our fears are verified, often baselessly. Our anger is amplified. The cycle of distrust is magnified. All in all, our faith in many institutions has been dragged to a critical tipping point. That was an
0: extract from Who Can You Trust? written by Rachel Botsman, who's here with me now. You talk about this echo chamber. and mm. We don't like it when we have a conversation with someone with an opposing view. Mm. So we're sort of almost subjecting ourselves to this extremely biased information that's coming our way you know i talk about the concept of filter bubbles i
1: tried to pop my filter bubble so to speak it's a horrible term but because <laughs> i thought about in brexit how many conversations did i have intelligent conversations mm. where someone really gave me an opposing view and yeah. i listened and it was a genuine conversation you try and pop your bubble it is extremely hard to do I can like it's, believe it's it. it's a conscious effort every single day to actually let these views in because the internet is it's like a master at sorting people into these online neighborhoods with similar views yeah and so you think like when you're sitting on the train in the morning and you're reading twitter and oh yeah you know I'm expanding my knowledge but you're actually just reinforcing your biases yes and also that's I, so true. you find things that you want to read cuz you are now in control well algorithms are largely in control, but you can curate your content in a way that wasn't that way when it was just, you know, the six o'clock news. Um, So I think the media's role in this is absolutely key.
0: Yes, completely. We're going to go to your first object now, (laughs) uh, which is a copy of the Lady magazine. Yes. So the Lady is where the royal family
1: and high society, which I am not, they find their butlers and their nannies and their garters. I'm sure there's a few in here. The reason why I brought that in is when I first started getting really fixated on this subject to trust, I always think it's an interesting thing when you're writing a book to really figure out where did this interest come from? Like, what is it deep inside of you that's going to commit, you know, the next two, three years of your life to researching and writing on this topic? And I started thinking about being a child and I started thinking about my parents and how we place our faith in strangers and I was always not suspicious of strangers but wary of them and wondering where that came from and then I realised that where this all started was when I was about five years old Hmm. and my mum went back to work and it is a very nerve-wracking experience finding someone to look after your kids so she decided if the raw family advertised in the lady she should advertise in the lady and this woman applied called Doris and at those time, they didn't have the internet and so she called her up, she did a phone interview and she had got written references and mum remembers her Scottish accent. She would roll her R's and it was really sing-songy. <laughs> long, long story short, so they hired this woman, Doris, and she came to stay... And I, I remember the day she walked into her house and she was wearing her Salvation Army uniform and she had the bonnet on. Good signifiers. All good sign- <laughs> they're called trust signals, which yeah. I talk about in the book. She knew what she was doing. Con artists are very good at yeah. figuring this out. She told mum that she'd joined the Salvation Army because she liked helping people. So she lived with us for over 10 months and... If you read the book, you'll see certain things happen, but there was nothing really suspicious about her. And then she disappeared for the weekend and Mum and Dad couldn't get hold of her and we were beginning to worry that something had happened to her. And we had neighbours at the time and they had kids the same age, so our au pair and their au pair were really good friends with one another. And he came round and he was knocking on the door and, and he sat my parents down and he's like, I've just discovered that our au pair and your nanny are running one of the largest drugs rings in North London. <laughs> And the reason why she belonged to the Salvation Army was that this was their cover-up, that they would go and do their drug dealing. So my dad was really frightened, and he sat outside our room waiting for her to come home, and then he went to the police. And then a couple of days later, the police came round to arrest him because it turned out the nanny had robbed a bank and used our (laughs) silver Volvo as the getaway (laughs) car. And so this story didn't come to me till I was writing the book, but I thought it was really remarkable that my parents who are smart people and Mm. generally quite rational could make such a bad decision when it came to trust. Mm. And so it was really significant because trust is quite a hard subject to unpack. So you start going, well, what went wrong? Mm. How did they make such a bad decision? And would they make the same decision in the digital age? And those two questions became really key as I was... So how do we make bad decisions around who to trust? And can technology solve that problem? And what I realise is there's a wonderful there's a the, trust theorist called Diego Gambetta I think that's how you pronounce his name and he says trust has two enemies not one bad character and poor information and technology can actually do quite a lot to address both of those yep. problems.
0: Had it been the days of the internet then she would have never have made the cut would she probably? Well now they
1: use like on Fido and Checker mm. and Experian like they do these very detailed background checks. It's not only the bad things that would have come up all the lies that she told so about her experience in the Salvation Army she would have been flagged so yeah. I interviewed Urban Sitter and they said that 75 percent of their applicants don't make the cut wow. and a lot yeah. of it's because what they say is true and their profile turns out not to be true
0: yeah yeah it's goes into every field doesn't it this shift you know trusting strangers in person-to-person transactions is so common now you know most people i know have used an uber at some point most people i know have had airbnb accommodation somewhere along the line do you feel that the possibilities are sort of limitless now
1: yeah and i think you know you'd say like homes Mm. to and kids are the frontier, right? Like, they're probably really high-risk situations. So I think it's interesting that those, and probably dating as well, that pretty personal things in our life have have tipped um, Mm. and that we're using technology to enable those forms of trust. I think what we're discovering now is like I talk about trust leaps in the book. So how do you get people to trust a new idea that seems really risky or even quite stupid? Mm. And then we go through sort of this accelerated mode of adoption because you hear about my parents, for example, that I'm not staying on Airbnb and then their friends start doing it and it socially proves the idea. Mm. And then it goes full cycle again where you start to hear about things going wrong. So prostitution and brothels and people even being killed. And then you start to go, oh, do I trust...
0: This idea. It's sort of, it's very bizarre, isn't it? Well, we're going to hear again from the audiobook of Who Can You Trust. And in this extract, you ask what coaxes us into trusting new ideas? The first depends
2: on making the unfamiliar more familiar. Consider sushi. The concept of sushi was introduced into the United States during the late 1960s, a period of whirlwind change in tastes entertainment, music, fashion, and food. At first, the idea of sushi did not bite. Keep in mind that the average family at the time was sitting down to a dinner of cuts of meats with sides of mashed potatoes swimming in gravy. The thought of eating raw fish was bewildering, even dangerous, in the minds of most restaurant-goers. And then a chef by the name of Ichiro Mashita who ran Tokyo Kaikan, a small sushi bar in downtown Los Angeles, had a clever idea. He asked, what would happen if the strange ingredients were combined with familiar ingredients such as cucumber, crab meat, and avocado? Mashita also realized that Americans preferred seeing the rice on the outside and seaweed paper in the interior. In other words, the roll would feel more familiar if it were made inside out. Demand exploded. The California roll was a gateway for many people to discover Japanese cuisine. Americans now consume $2.25 billion worth of sushi annually. As Nia Eyal, the author of Hooked writes, the lesson of the California roll is simple. People don't want something truly new They want the familiar done differently. So there's been a bit of backlash, hasn't there, recently with some of these
0: digital businesses? For instance, Airbnb forcing out local residents in Barcelona, then all the problems Uber have been having. I mean, why do you think this is? I
1: think what is happening is that for a long time now, over a decade, whether it be Facebook or Uber or even Amazon or eBay, they've claimed that they're sort of neutral platforms or just pathways, technology pathways that connect people directly or connect Mm -hmm. supply and demand in some way. And their job is to be the software. It's to be the technology to make that process as efficient And in many ways, secure as possible. But what they've claimed is they are not responsible for what happens on that platform. They're
0: kind of like a new kind of middleman, but without the responsibility. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so you can understand, like, if you're. Hilton Hotel, um, if you're London, um, Black Taxis, or even mm. if you're a traditional bank and you're looking at these... Or, or a com- media company like the New York Times, Or a citizen
0: right? of Barcelona oh, that yeah. is <laughs> priced up. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and you're looking at these things and you're like, hang on a minute, like, here we have these billion-dollar monopolies that have made some people extremely wealthy. They don't, not all of them, treat their employees well. Yeah. Um, it's not the case for all of them. They're very different, so I hate putting them in the same mm. bucket. But there's something wrong here, right? Like there has to be some degree of accountability what happens. And so I think what's happening is people are saying, we want you to be accountable in two ways. We want you to reduce the risk of bad things happening and not just around payment fraud. But how do you give me the tools to actually know that that content is fake news? So just an example. And then I think where there is rising heat is being responsible when things go wrong. You know, Airbnb, I should say, actually comes across really well in the book because this is something they take really seriously. Mm. It's like every single incident that happens on that platform, they go back and they say, How do we change the system? What do we do that could actually address or fix that problem so it doesn't happen mm. again? Which is not the case with all the companies that I interviewed, where you see this like sort of deference of responsibility that yeah. it's the technology's
0: for or it's, it's between
1: the two people, they need to resolve this issue.
0: Okay, well, we're going to move on to your next object now, which is
1: a book. It is a book, a a brilliant book. I brought this in because Michael Lewis, I think, is, well, he's my favourite storyteller of all time. I think he's just a master. And the reason why he has sort of relevance to me is because he takes very complicated stories and, and ideas that essentially could be quite dry and boring, yes. you know, like money ball, statistics and baseball mm. or flash trading. And he unpacks them and he finds these human stories and he leads you in and it's just really accessible. And trust is actually a really hard topic to write about. It's very easy to get quite complicated and theoretical and it's quite Intangible as well. So mm. when I was writing the book, I sort of became Michael Lewis obsessed and I would listen to him on the bus and when I got home <laughs> and I would re- reread all his books because there's a cadence to his writing that is very, very seductive. Mm. And when you feel like you're getting stuck in a book, it's kind of like training or dancing that you can feel the beat of another author and yeah. not a dream of writing like Michael Lewis one day, but you can sort of... Use it he, for guidance. You can, yeah, and mm. you can sort of... He, so he took this thing and this is what he did and you can actually deconstruct his writing yeah, and essentially think about how you could apply that to your yes. own stories. And the other interesting thing that I realised... Just subconsciously is that he often writes a lot about speed of decisions so if you think about in the big short like how did all these people make the same decision around something yeah and if you think of flash boys you know the accelerated nature of training and then the undoing project which is the one that i have in front of me is really about the behavioral science of the way people make decisions so mm. out of all the authors and things i read michael lewis probably had the most influence in terms of the style of the book so thank you, Michael Lewis. You're my touchstone <laughs> every evening.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, you, because you managed to do it. And we're going to go back to the audiobook of Who Can You Trust, where we hear of the Maghrebi merchants, 11th century Egyptian traders, who had a very,
2: very modern idea. The merchants formed a coalition with a system of collective sanctions. The tight-knit group would frequently write and talk to each other, openly sharing information about good agents and those up to no good. However, they couldn't just rely on shaming the cheaters. Merely identifying them was not enough to discourage bad behavior. Rewards for acting honestly and responsibly were needed as an incentive against the short-term gains cheating offered. The Maghrebi traders designed a simple, reputation-based system where the most trustworthy agents were rewarded with the most business. If one agent ripped off a merchant, the entire trading network subsequently shunned him. All the merchants were required to take a collective vow, never knowingly to employ crooks. The agents knew their success in the long run depended on repeat business. The traders were able to set aside their fears of getting scammed because both parties knew honesty would pay. What's more, it turned out that it didn't matter if the merchants weren't aware of every wrongdoing the threat that they could find out was enough to make the agents behave honestly. If people believe they are being observed and judged, it makes them behave better, even if they're not actually being watched all the time. An extract there from Who Can You Trust? Written
0: by the lovely Rachel Botsman. Now, Rachel, you are really used to public speaking, aren't you? Because you do TED Talks and you're a university lecturer. But I've got to ask, was it like hearing someone else reading your work? I think Caroline did a, an amazing job. I
1: mean, her pronunciation, I wish I could read like that. But no, it is quite strange. Um, the funny thing is, though, I never watch a video of myself. I can't watch myself yeah. live or hear myself, which is maybe why I chose someone else to read the book. But it is strange because as you were writing it, you had an intention, right? You had an expression. Yeah. And then sometimes she's reading it and you're like... Oh, how did she pick up that because yeah, it was yeah. different from what you meant. That but, nuance, um, I hadn't thought of that. Like, but that. It helps yeah. you hear it in a different way. Mm. And, and I can also hear it like, oh,
0: that's a bad line. I should have fixed that, you know. Mm, yeah, totally. So we've heard a bit about businesses using reputation-based system, but we're also all obsessed, aren't we, with, with personal scores on digital platforms mm. or having a thumbs up or a like, you know. Why is that? Have we always been that obsessed? Is it just sort of making it more visual?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's digitizing something that is very intrinsic to human beings, which is, you know, even if you didn't publicly rate someone, you formed an opinion. Mm. And essentially, you know, reputation is just the sum of what people think of you. Mm. And the interesting thing is now how those opinions are becoming public. Mm. And in some way, they're very useful, you know, so they sort of form this like wisdom of friends or the wisdom of crowds where Mm. you don't have to make blind decisions about people or things, whether that's a movie to watch on Netflix or which babysitter to hire but on the other hand it's an extremely precarious place to be in society where we're continually reviewing and rating something and i think when this started rather naively i had this idea that we could have this reputation score and the thinking behind it was when i was interviewing like a new seller on ebay or a new TaskRabbit rabbit or whoever it was they would say like i'm like a digital ghost Right, it takes me months to build up a profile and I can't get any work. So I was thinking, well, if you're trustworthy in this marketplace, why couldn't you port that reputation and take it into another marketplace yes, to sort of kickstart it? Mm. And it was a rather naive proposition because first of all, trust is highly contextual. So hopefully you can trust me to write, but I'm a terrible driver, right? Mm. So just because you're trustworthy over here doesn't mean you should read into that over here. Yeah. But then this idea of reducing number people to a score when I really started to think and research the implications of that I was this this is a really bad idea
0: it's really scary i mean the chinese system that's being brought in sesame credit yeah i mean I find that terrifying that by 2020 everyone Mm. will have to be on the system, won't they? Yeah. And like that's got to be a bad thing, hasn't it? So they have this social credit system.
1: The big data giants, so Tennyson, Alibaba, they were given a license originally to form their own system. So Sesame Credit was one of those. That license actually recently been retracted. But I think it's actually the Chinese government trying to get control. And when I was writing about this, I was like, this is so frightening down to like what you purchase. So if we purchase. Nappies because we have kids, our score would go up because we would be seen as parents and be more responsible. But if you play video games, your score might go down because you're lazy.
0: This is crazy because you could be purchasing nappies to put on the kid you've kidnapped. It's a very bizarre system, but when you talk to people in China...
1: The majority of them, first of all, they can't see anything wrong with this because this is digitising just something that's been inherent in Chinese culture. Yes, it's part of
0: their culture, this... Um,
1: They'll also point out there is an economic reason for this because they don't have a history of credit scores and there's a high instance of fraud, so they need this. Mm. And then they'll also say, quite rightly... Well, you know what? Like, it's easy to point a finger at us, but this is happening in the
0: West. Um, which brings us kind of nicely onto the next object, which is an image of Lacey Pounds, isn't yes. it? Yes. From Black Mirror, <laughs> the dystopian... Serious, so here, yeah. here she is. So, um, what is so Lacey
1: doing Lacy's Lacey's doing. So, Lacey lives in this world where everyone is rating one another. So, mm. she gets a coffee from her local shop and she gives it a rating based on the swirl. And then, the brilliance of the whole of Black Mirror is it's right on the edge of it being reality true. and true. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know it 's about this future we 're clumsy, but in this episode, so mm. she goes around like rating even the way someone looks at her in the elevator, and she needs to get her score to a certain level to get her the flat that she really wants and so she hears about one of her friends from school who's known as a high influencer because she has this really high score and it 's her wedding and so she thinks oh i 'll go to the wedding and i 'll boost my score so I can get my apartment and Of course, it all goes horribly wrong, but nosedive is it 's just is the perfect illustration of, of this future that we really are heading into that could be one giant digital popularity context that it kind of almost is minute. It, it is and people go well that's so you know that's never going to happen that's so unbelievable we're yeah. never going to need it need a you know a trust score to get an apartment i'm like apart from artificial intelligence this is the thing that really worries me about my children
3: mm. for my children
1: i should mm. say because like, how are they ever going to be present? How will their transgressions... How? What will be forgiveness in society if it is this permanent digital trail that follows us for the rest of our lives? Yes, yeah, it's horrible. And it's more than surveillance. It's like this pressure to be this perfect version of ourselves. And, yeah. you know, the scene that really... I can't watch Black Mirror, I have to say, before I go to bed because it just, it always sticks with (laughs) my mind. But, you know, she's in the mirror in the morning. She's practising her smile because it will just boost her by a few more points. I see this on Instagram. Like, it is this very edited version of our, like, but you just get sucked in. I think your question is a really important one. Is like, how do you opt out? It's that feeling of not just missing out, but... It's more than that. It's like, maybe I won't be able to get something. Maybe I won't be able to even send my children to a certain school, which is one of the punishments in China. Well, that's
0: the thing. You know, jobs sometimes come and you have to tweet to a zillion followers and I'm not even on Twitter. (laughs) So does that mean that I can't get that job? It's a really, really bizarre society that we're living in. Back to the audiobook of Who Can You Trust. In this extract, you ask whether we'll all have a permanent online identity
2: in the future. I hope not. Barring some kind of mass citizen's revolt to wrench back privacy and personal information, we are entering an age where an individual's actions will be judged by standards they can't control and where that judgment cannot be erased. The consequences are not only troubling, they are permanent. Forget the right to delete and the right to be forgotten. Forget being young and foolish. It's why, at the very least, We urgently need to find a way to create forgiveness for moments of madness, ineptitude, or cheating. Deletion should not be outlawed. Human beings, with all our imperfections, are so much more than a number. While it might be too late to stop this new era, we do have choices and rights we need to be exerting now. For one thing, we need to be able to rate the raters. In his book, The Inevitable, Kevin Kelly describes a future where the watchers and the watched will transparently and ceaselessly track each other. Our central choice now is whether this surveillance is a secret one-way panopticon or a mutual transparent kind of coveillance that involves watching the watchers, he writes. The first option is hell, the second redeemable. That was an
0: extract from Who Can You Trust? written by Rachel Botsman. Will it come to that point that people talk about where the internet has its own consciousness and robots are progressing and updating themselves and outrunning us?
1: One of the things I actually wish I'd talked about more in the book was Mm. was children and their relationship technology. And I I often think, well, maybe I couldn't go there because my kids are in that age. I mean, I think is this idea like could it be the perfect boyfriend like it's always there it's always reliable it's not messy it's it's not complicated it always says what you want it to hear Mm. and I think one of the things the biggest leaps that we're going to see around technology is our relationship is largely that it's predictable right it's reliable I get in my car it turns on it turns left and it turns right our kids shift from it doing something to deciding something and I don't think we're prepared for the degree to which they're outsourced their decision-making.
0: So, which brings me nicely on to your next object, which is a person, but it isn't a person, but it has a name. Alexa. <laughs> Alexa the bot. It's
1: not... An, it's a speaker. Yeah, it's not <laughs> With a person. a commercial giant behind it called all. Amazon. It's but um, Alexa's really interesting. My poor kids, they are guinea pigs for a lot of things. And I think what's really interesting is that when we plugged Alexa in is watching their interactions. So um, like I was laughing with you just before that my son yesterday was like, I don't like this Alexa, let's have another Alexa because he didn't like the answer (laughs) that was given. So even the idea that this this person that they definitely refer to as her and has a multitude of personalities. But my daughter Grace was really interesting because I wanted to see how quickly she got to letting Alexa make decisions for her. Mm. And so, you know, on the first day it's because she's half British, she was asking about the weather and silly things like (laughs) what horses eat and like children do. And then she discovered pretty quickly that Alexa could play music from Sing. Um, And so we listened to that soundtrack 55 times. (laughs) And then um, day two, she realised she could order things from Alexa.
0: Right. Okay. No, she this had.
1: It's on. like she had no idea that Amazon was. You know. So yeah. and she loves blueberries. So she ordered all these blueberries, and they arrived because she'd ordered them. And, and then the third day, what was really interesting is she came down the stairs, and usually she says, "Oh, good morning, Jack, her brother. Good morning, mummy." But the first person she said good morning to was Alexa,
0: and she <gasps> You're said, "Superseded." She, she said Alexa. Um,
1: but it was interesting. She said to Alexa two questions. She said, "Alexa, what should I do today?" And Alexa, what should I wear? Oh, Now you think about what we were talking about, that's outsourcing her decision-making to a, essentially a very cheap speaker that lights up with a turquoise rim. And what Gracie doesn't realise is the next version, which is out now, has a camera. She sees you as well, and it has a star rating algorithm. So if Gracie stood in front of it, it would say... I give that outfit a 4.8 and I give that one a 4.6. And
0: how does it work? Has it actually got some substance behind it? Well,
1: if you read in the Amazon Terms and Conditions, they've, they've paired with fashion stylists and experts oh to gosh, code the algorithms. Terrifying. But you know what's very convenient, Connie, is that they've just launched new fashion labels and brands. So, you know, Gracie might stand there and say, well, well you know, I like the dress, but the shoes are all wrong. Do you want me to ship them to your school in the next so hour? So this is
0: all leading to purchases? Of course. Oh, no, I don't like Alexa. <laughs> I unplugged Alexa. I'm sceptical of <laughs> Siri, but Alexa I really don't like.
1: Yeah, well, Grace actually told Alexa that she was smarter than Siri, which I thought was hilarious, that oh, she really. she was comparing the personalities of yeah, these two things. Her robot friends. Her yeah,
0: robot friends. Oh, my goodness me. But uh, you know what I think? People don't realise, a lot of people don't realise how quickly all this is just going to be the norm mm. so you know most households don't have an alexa yet and most households don't believe that they'll be in a self-driven car in their lifetime but this is all happening pretty much mm. now isn't it i think people to say well how do you get people to trust a self-driving car mm. it's actually the wrong question it's that we'll give our
1: trust away too easily do you think? Oh, totally. So I think self-driving cars, you know, in many cities, it will be 2025. 20, I mean, you already see them on cities in like Philadelphia, this
0: place in Helsinki. Will and people trust self-driving cars more than getting in a car with their friend then?
1: I think so. And I think the interesting thing we don't think about is we're used to being driven. So we're actually quite used to the behaviour, right? We're used to moving from A to B mm-hmm. and not and not, not being the driver. So yeah. it's just this idea of handing the control to a computer. And, you know, we've seen with the accidents, what it is is when the car says to the human being, I need you to take control right now because I don't know what to do.
0: Mm.
1: And the human being is watching a film of Harry Potter, is the case, was mm. the case, or they're having a nice chinwag. It's that, you know, one of the things I think our kids will say would be like, what, did, you know, all that time you wasted commuting, yeah. because the car is going to become like the phone. It's going to become this new platform for yeah. content and experiences because someone else will do the driving for you. Well,
0: it's all what we're used to, isn't it? I mean, we don't drive planes, so we don't mind being you know, on automatic pilot, and that's what it will be like in the future in a in a car that's driving people around. Um, we're going to move on to your final extract now from the audiobook, Who Can You Trust?, And in this, we discuss where does the law stand when a robot has to make difficult choices?
2: Take the classic ethical dilemma known as the trolley problem. It goes like this. You are the controller of a runaway trolley, train, that is hurtling towards a cluster of five people who are standing on the track and face certain death if the trolley keeps running. By flipping a switch, you can divert the trolley to a different track, where one person is standing, currently out of harm's way, but who will be killed if you change the course. What do you do? Philosophers argue that there is a moral distinction between actively killing one person by flipping the switch or passively letting people die. It's a no-win situation with no right answer. Autonomous machines will soon face countless situations akin to the trolley problem but they won't be clouded by human panic, confusion or fear. Now imagine it's 2030 and you are in a self-driving car going down a quiet road. You've mentally switched off. You're chatting with your personal guru bot on your iPhone 52 about three things you will do this week towards your happiness goals while the car is in full control. A pedestrian suddenly steps out, right in the path of the oncoming vehicle. Should the car swerve and avoid the crash, even if it will severely injure you? The car must make a calculation. What if the pedestrian is a pregnant woman and you, the car owner, are an elderly man? What if it's a small child running after a ball? Consider this. What happens if the car, in a split second, can check both the pedestrian and the car owner's trust scores to determine who is a more trustworthy member of society.
0: I mean, robots do bring about lots of ethical dilemmas. Will there be new institutions and new things coming in place to just deal with that alone?
1: Yeah, and it's, it's a really interesting question as to who should be setting sort of the ethics... Governing. It. Yeah, mm. and governing... Like, who, mm. who's, where do these ethical frameworks come from? Like, mm. where is there... A precedent in human history, like is there something in the relationship between humans and slavery, for example, that we can look from, so I think it 's like who makes those decisions, and then who programs the intentions into the bot, whether it 's just an algorithm or into something physical in oxford they 've just launched the digital ethics lab yeah. Um, And it's run by a guy called Luciano Floridi, who's known as Google's philosopher. Mm. You know, philosophers meeting this world of technology is a a really interesting fusion. What worries me is when the companies have free reign to set the ethical intentions. Because once they're set in the machine, in some instances, we then lose control of how that machine makes
0: decisions. Well, it's time to move on now to your final object, um, which I believe you're wearing. I am wearing, yes. I'm wearing um,
1: <laughs> my engagement ring, which I actually only noticed this morning is missing another diamond.
0: <laughs> Funny that. this is, The book begins, actually, doesn't it? It at does. your
1: wedding. I actually love writing this book and a lot just sort of came out. But I was so stuck on the introduction. Yeah. And I was sitting there and I had this deadline and I've never had this feeling of, like, I just don't know what to write about. Mm. And I tried all these different things. And I don't know about you, but I sit there and I fiddle with my ring I twist it round and round and as I was doing that I suddenly was like Nana's ring Nana's (laughs) ring there was two stories around it one I realised like the day we got married in 2008 was the day Lehman Brothers crashed. Yeah. And so I was like, that's the opening, right? The day I was taking my biggest leap of trust and entering this institution of marriage, mm. all these institutions <laughs> around us were collapsing. Clapsing. And, and you know, on your wedding day, you're sort of in this bubble. But mm. I was sort of aware of what was going on. So I suddenly realised that was the opening of the book. And then when I was writing the blockchain chapter... And the blockchain is, in terms of making things human, it's really hard.
0: Oh, um, I, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Really it plays with my head. How <laughs> does one simply explain what blockchain technology will enable in the future? So the easy way to think of it
1: is it's the transfer of value or it's the transfer of assets. And those assets, you know, we think of it as currency. So we think of Bitcoin and blockchain, but Blockchain is like the backbone. It's the architecture underneath Bitcoin. And anything that has value, so the rights to my book, the rights to a song, the rights to a piece of an artwork, registration of things that have value, so like a diamond, they will sit on the blockchain and say... I wanted to transfer ownership of this diamond over to you. Mm. We could do that directly. Now, you may not want this diamond now because it turns out (laughs) that it was dodgy. Um, So there's this whole story that I discovered when my Nana was on her deathbed that this wasn't really the family heirloom, but that she sold it to go on a luxury cruise. But with the blockchain, there's no way of knowing this because all the paper records have been lost. But on the blockchain, it will have a permanent history of the transfers and transactions. So... It's like these valuable objects will carry like a digital DNA that we'll be able to dig into, and that's that's the part for me that I find really interesting is that sort of artifacts will carry a history of time that is, yes, very good for security,
0: but these stories won't get lost. I mean, it is exciting. the The possibilities that this new wave of blockchain technology will create is it's actually mind blowing. When I while I was reading the book, I I almost couldn't get my head round what we're on the cusp on. And it's hard to say it in a podcast and it's hard to sort of distill it into a simple form. I hope we've done justice (laughs) to the book. It's a fantastic book. Thank you so much for sharing all you've shared. Is there anything, just quickly, that you feel has been left out? Well, there's two things. One, I wish I
1: looked more at emerging markets, so where there was no institution, I think Mm. that's really fertile ground. Mm. Um, And then right after this book, I read Yuval Harari's brilliant And I think actually talking more about how human beings don't change and how technology is really good at reinventing things. So the traders that we heard the clip of, you know, how we take these systems that have worked for a very long period of time, but we either make them more efficient or scalable in ways that haven't been possible. And, And so maybe that is another thing to look at how history just repeats itself, but it reinvents itself in a different
0: form. Well, we look forward to, to reading it all in your next book. I'm taking a break. <laughs> <laughs> a well-deserved <laughs> break. Thank you so much, Rachel, and bye. Thank you.
2: The Upstarts by Brad Stone. New York Times best-selling author of The Everything Store, Brad Stone takes us deep inside the new Silicon Valley. Ten years ago, the idea of getting into a stranger's car or walking into a stranger's home would have seemed bizarre and dangerous. But today, it's as common as ordering a book online. Uber and Airbnb are household names, redefining neighbourhoods, challenging the way governments regulate business and changing the way we travel. In the spirit of iconic Silicon Valley renegades like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, a new generation of entrepreneurs is sparking yet another cultural upheaval
3: through technology. That was eight years ago. Much has changed since then. The president, for starters. But few changes have been as profound as those that were ushered in by those two groups of entrepreneurs sitting anonymously in the crowd that day. They had plenty of help. The late Apple co-founder Steve Jobs introduced the first iPhone seven months before Obama's inauguration. Two months after it, Jobs announced that the iPhone would run software programs called mobile applications, or apps, from other companies. Other significant technology trends were converging at the same time, The social network Facebook, founded in a Harvard dorm room in 2004, was skyrocketing in popularity and persuading Internet users to establish their identities online. The search giant Google was making it easier for other companies to integrate its mapping tool, Google Maps, into their own apps and websites. Computers and phones were getting cheaper and more powerful. Broadband Internet use was skyrocketing. All these intersecting trends produced the biggest tectonic shift in computing history since the invention of the web browser. In the span of 10 years, a majority of the people in the modern world started to run large portions of their lives online, mostly through the slender slabs of plastic, glass, and silicon that they could hold in their hands and slip into their pockets. The juggernauts Uber and Airbnb did not generate this technological wave, but more than any other companies over those eight years, They wrote it and profited from it. The two companies, both in San Francisco, their headquarters only a mile apart, are among the fastest-growing startups in history by sales, overall market value, and number of employees. Together, they have scrawled in the annals of entrepreneurship the most memorable stories of a third phase of Internet history, the post-Google, post-Facebook era of innovation that allowed the digital realm to expand into the physical one. They have attained these heights despite the fact that their businesses own little in the way of physical assets. Airbnb can be considered the biggest hotel company on the planet, yet it possesses no actual hotel rooms. Uber is among the world's largest car services, yet it doesn't employ any professional drivers or own any vehicles, save for a small experimental fleet of self-driving cars. They are the ultimate 21st century internet businesses bringing not only new opportunities, but new kinds of risks, often poorly understood, to those who provide and utilize their services.
2: The Upstarts by Brad Stone is available now to download and own from Audible and iTunes.